for a scripture reading this morning. Brother John Ivan has asked me to read from Philippians, Philippians 2. The heading for, in my Bible, the heading for Philippians 2 says, Christ's example of humility. And we'll start reading with verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But, <clears throat> excuse me, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being, <clears throat> excuse me, being born, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming the obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every name, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the God the Father. Thank you, Brother Fred, for that reading. I would commend that passage to you for meditation each day this week, for it pulls together in a beautiful, concise, and lofty way the salvation that we have because of Jesus Christ, the humility with which he came to become one of us and even went to the cross, but God raised him back and exalted him. And if that doesn't summarize a lot of our uh, precious stories from the Easter week, why uh, it's, it's worth meditating and memorizing. I turn our attention this morning to Luke chapter 19. I asked the children if they know what special day this is, and of course, many of them do. Thank you, moms and dads, for helping them to get a grasp of the, the special time of the year we are in as a church as we anticipate Easter next Sunday, and today is what we commonly call Palm Sunday. The week between is usually referred to as Passion Week, the week of Christ's sufferings. And about a third of our gospel accounts are devoted to this week that begins today with with Palm Sunday and goes through next Sunday Easter and then the uh, resurrection and ascension experiences thereafter. Um, and so this is a very special and, and uh, a very special week for the Christian church. And as we begin that week here on Easter and uh, on Palm Sunday, I, I want to just call our attention this morning to the experience of our Lord to the story of his entry into Jerusalem. Sometimes we call it his triumphal entry. 
And sometimes we think, what a contrast between Sunday and what happened then on Friday. And it was truly a marked contrast. And yet, in the mind of Jesus, neither was an accident. As I've studied this story, I've been impressed to realize that this was not a spontaneous and unplanned event as Jesus rode a donkey into Jerusalem. He staged that event. He is the one who went ahead of them to Jerusalem. He is the one who instructed the disciples, go, get the donkey's colt, bring it to me. He is the one who determined that he would enter Jerusalem in a way that he had never done before, riding on a donkey. No doubt he knew that many, many people were at Jerusalem already. And he knew that many people that lived at Jerusalem were acquainted with him. And they were all watching and wondering, will Jesus be here for this week, the Passover week? Surely he'll come, won't he? This is the time when all the Jews are supposed to come to Jerusalem for, for the holiday, for the special sacred day. And so they were looking for Jesus. They were expecting him. They were talking about him. I began trying to figure out why did Jesus do it this way? And I'm not sure I know exactly, but I have discovered some things that I want to share with you this morning that give us a, a reason, many reasons for Jesus' entry and for what was happening in this special story. A few words to describe the setting before we read the story in Luke 19. Actually, the story is, account, uh, is recorded in each of the four Gospels, a very rare event for the life of Jesus, but all of them record this story. And uh, I choose the one from Luke 19, not because it has all the details, but because it does have many of them and will serve to, um, to remind us of what happened to the Lord. For some months now, Jesus has been traveling with his disciples, but always heading toward Jerusalem. Always mindful that he had an appointment. And he was deliberate about keeping that appointment. He knew that in the Father's time, the hour would come and it would be this coming week. He frequently referred to his life as under that kind of schedule. My, hour, my time has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. But this is the week where he will say positively, the hour has come. The hour has come. The time has come. He went deliberately toward Jerusalem, and he staged his journeying till it would come at the right time. He's been away from Jerusalem because of opposition there. It was about four, four months prior to this, we believe, that near Jerusalem, at Bethany, he had done the most astounding miracle that people were still talking about. He had raised to life a man who had been dead four days. And this was not just a common, ordinary old man. This was a man that, somebody, that people well knew in Jerusalem. And if you read that account in John 11, you realize that many people knew Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and they came out to comfort them at Bethany at the time of Lazarus' death. 
And four days late, Jesus got there. And you know the story. Lazarus was called forth out of the tomb. Word of that miracle didn't die out the next day. It's still going on these months later. And people are saying, I want to see him. And they're actually wanting to see Lazarus. And so as Jesus is coming toward Jerusalem with the Passover event, the Passover week in mind, he comes first to Bethany, and he was there yesterday, we might say. And they prepared a supper for him as an honored guest. And Lazarus was also there as an honored guest. If we, if we have this right, this happened just this past weekend. And now, on what we call Palm Sunday, Jesus is making preparation to make his own entry into Jerusalem. From Bethany to Jerusalem, it's a matter of going uphill. Uphill from Bethany up to the top of Mount of Olives. And then from there, you can see over the valley ahead of you to Jerusalem down the valley, through the Kidron Valley, and up into Jerusalem. About two miles from Bethany to Jerusalem, and as Jesus was preparing to go, he instructed his disciples, which we will read about, about going to get the donkey. And so there's going to be an uphill, a downhill, and then going into Jerusalem. There's a lot of people already at Bethany. They've heard about Jesus. They know about him. They know about Lazarus. Furthermore, many, many people have come in advance to Jerusalem from Galilee, from Judea, from, from further out, from Perea across the Jordan, and from other countries, no doubt. Because of the great crowds at Jerusalem, it takes extra time for all the preparations to happen and all the cleansing of themselves in view of the coming Passover. And so many of them got there a week or two or whatever ahead of time. And so Jerusalem is filled with its own citizens, or the ones I call the locals, and it's filled with the pilgrims or the visitors that have come from other countries, all for the event of the, of the Sabbath, I mean the Passover. And so Passover is coming up this very next week, and Jesus is very conscious of that as he makes preparation to enter Jerusalem at this momentous time. Momentous in the life of Israel as a nation because it's their annual Passover. But it's touched in a special way this time because they're looking for the one who has been doing these mighty miracles and surely he will show up at the Passover and surely we'll get to see him and there's excitement rippling through the crowds even while there is that ominous threat from the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders you be sure to tell us if you know where he's at because they have been making plans to get rid of him. And so that's the setting we have in Luke 19 as we come to the story of the triumphal entry beginning to read at verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. 
So those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on it, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. As we read this account and the other accounts in the other Gospels, I think we discover several reasons why Jesus staged this event and set himself on a colt to make this entry into Jerusalem. I'm sure he was aware of the of that different views <laughs> and the tension that existed between the Jewish leaders who were opposing him and the popular people who were acclaiming him. They were the ones who were excited and enthusiastic about the miracles he had done. They were the ones who were saying, isn't this the, the, the Messiah? And they were the ones who were, were welcoming him to Jerusalem. And so as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, it is a large and public event. The people at Bethany were coming along with him. People from Jerusalem, I guess they got the word by Twitter and, and anyway, the, the news went viral and they heard Jesus is coming and they came out to meet him. And so there's this great congregation coming up the hill from both sides, meeting Jesus to welcome him in, to acclaim him as the one that they believe he is to be. It's too large an event to ignore. And people were saying to one another, no doubt, what do you think? Who is he? What, what do you think he, what do you, what do you see him do? Or what have you heard him say? Did you hear about this? And they were talking like that, and they were also still remembering the events of Lazarus. The connection with Lazarus' story is very obvious in John's gospel. The Lazarus story is in chapter 11. The triumphal entry is in the very next chapter. John doesn't record the events that happened in between, but he does seem to connect the two, and the coming of Jesus into Jerusalem is particularly a popular one because of Lazarus and the people that had heard about his new life. Well, he's still alive. 
he didn't just pass away, Lazarus, the next week or whatever. And so they are knowing that this was truly a, a, an outstanding miracle. And as they uh, welcome Jesus in, they begin to shout and chant together. And they began to recite some of the things that have been a part of their journey toward Jerusalem. The ones that, that are recorded here um, come from Psalm 118. One of the Psalms that they typically recite and chant as they're going to Zion, as they're going up to Jerusalem for the feast. And the Psalms were part of their, of their national experience as they went to, to Jerusalem uh, on these special occasions. And the one we have here, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, is the one that comes from Psalm 118 and expresses their confidence that this is the king. I believe Jesus did this to give them opportunity to express that little faith that was already budding in their hearts. That faith and confidence that was, was resonating in their heart with what God was doing, what God was doing through Jesus. And they were, they were given an opportunity on this event to publicly and corporately declare, this is the king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. In Mark's gospel, he uses the word Hosanna, which is a term that means, Lord, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. With such words they acclaimed Jesus, and without a word he sat on his donkey and rode along. At least there's no words recorded that he said. He perhaps was listening. He perhaps was smiling. Perhaps he was nodding approval. He was, he was receiving their acclamation. He was acknowledging that what they said was right even though in his heart, and the gospel writers indicate, they didn't fully understand what they were saying, what his implications were, or what was about to be happening next. They didn't understand that, but what they were saying was right, and they were verbalizing it, and they were testifying to others, this special person of who Jesus is. They were testifying in their own hearts what they believed, and that's always a good thing for us to do, and I think we ought to do it more. Now, this week is an excellent time to do that. As you're going about your work or you're going about shopping or whatever you're doing, draw attention by the words you say to what you believe about who Jesus is. And don't let Easter slip by with jelly beans and chocolate candy. It's a whole lot more than that. Testify. Jesus was affirming their opportunity and their verbalization of what they believed about who he is. And even Romans, uh, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, you'll be saved. So I challenge you this morning to do like the crowds did on Palm Sunday. Confess with your mouth who Jesus is, what you believe him to be, who he is in your life, and what he has done for you. We are troubled a bit because we now know the rest of the story, at least the story of Passion Week. And we typically say that the same crowds turned against him, and a few days later were shouting, crucify him. As somebody was, and we're not sure if it was the same people or if it was others. But we do know that on this day, they were acclaiming with joyous praise and acclamation, Hosanna to the Son of God, David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they were receiving him as a king. A few days later, there was a whole crowd. Perhaps some of these were 
intimidated and silent. Perhaps it was others, but a crowd that was stirred up by the Jewish leaders to shout, crucify him, crucify him. I want to give at least some of them the benefit of the doubt and say they probably didn't say it, these same people, but maybe they were afraid and kept their mouths shut. And we have no record on Good Friday morning that any of them were saying, but what about Lazarus? We don't have any record of any of them saying, but how about the lepers that he healed? We don't have any record of anybody speaking up at a time where Jesus' life was about to be taken. And so, on that day, he again was acclaimed to be king of the Jews. You remember the sign they put on the, on the cross. To the chagrin of the Pharisees who asked Pilate, take it down, take it down, just say, he said I'm the king of the Jews. The people said it. The thousands said it on Palm Sunday. And Pilate had been pushed as far as he was going to be pushed, and he put his foot down there and said, what I've written, I've written, and he let it stand, the king of the Jews. So the week began with people acclaiming him to be the king of the Jews. The week ended with Jesus on the cross, the, the sign on the cross declaring he is the king of the Jews. And where are the people in the meantime? We don't know what they were doing or thinking, but there were still many people there the day of the Passover watching him be crucified and give his life. And I wonder if those people that had been on the road to Jerusalem on Sunday saw that sign and were smitten in their hearts, thinking, yeah, that's exactly what I said the other day. What has happened now? I want to believe that in their hearts, the testimony on the sign on the cross struck their heart and prepared them for the day of Pentecost when 3,000 believed and said, yes, he is the king. He is the Lord. I do believe in him. We don't know who was in each crowd. On those, on those events in that day. But we do know that the king who was acclaimed on Palm Sunday was acclaimed as well on Good Friday and on Pentecost. And many did believe in him. So Jesus gave them this opportunity to say what they believed. The gospel writers indicated enough that we know they didn't well understand it. The disciples, even those who were closest to Jesus, didn't understand what all was, being, what was taking place and the, the ways that prophecy was being fulfilled and so on. But you know, our faith doesn't have to be perfect and fully mature in order for us to express it. And the people here expressed even that little bit of faith that they had even though it was not fully fledged out and, and well-developed, they expressed that faith, and Jesus welcomed and appreciated that, and it was right that they would do that. 
As I've mentioned, it seems that Jesus was silent on this journey to Bethlehem, to Jerusalem. He was not saying anything until the Pharisees had it up to here, and they said, Master, tell him to shut up. And Jesus' response was, if I tell them to be quiet, then the rocks are going to start shouting it out. Shouting what out? The facts of who Jesus is. And again, it underscores what I've already been saying about the importance of confessing and saying with our mouths what we believe about Jesus. Jesus is saying that the, the person and works of Christ are so obvious. They are so obviously from God. They are wrought by supernatural power from God that it's required that they be expressed. And if the people don't say it, then something in nature will. I think his silence through this time is a challenge to them. Be fair with the facts. These people are talking about miracles that have happened. There's Lazarus. He's coming along with the crowd, perhaps. We saw him last night at supper. He's still alive. There's different ones here who have heard, his, heard my, speak, my teaching, my messages, my parables. They know that my message is consistently calling them to live above the old worn-out religion and practices and rituals and traditions that they've been tied up with. They're lifting them up toward God. Be fair with the facts. What I've done and what I've said are truly marks of who I am. This Jesus, now riding on a donkey, is more than a carpenter. He's even more than the prophet from Nazareth, as some would call him. That was right. He was a carpenter. He was a man from Nazareth. He was a prophet, but he's more than a prophet. Consider what his life and ministry, his teachings and miracles have testified about who he is. And then let's go back to point one and testify what we believe about this Jesus. Part of the challenge this morning, then, is <clears throat> not if we had been there, what would we have done, but we are here. What do we know about Jesus, and what are we saying about him? Are we giving expression to our faith? Are we letting others know who he is and what he has done and how he can and is willing to change our lives? We recoil at the thought of opposing him like the Pharisees did. But if by our silence we give in to what the Pharisees are saying, crucify him, are we not in the same group as they? Finally, I believe Jesus wants to clarify by riding on a colt the nature of his kingdom. Okay, they're calling me a king. They're calling me the son of David. They are the ones who are waving the palm branches, and palm branches for them signified uh, victory. But Jesus isn't coming in with, with high five or holding up a victory sign or anything like that. Jesus is simply coming along, riding on this colt, riding toward Jerusalem.
neither the disciples nor the crowds understood the significance of this entry. For the past months, Jesus has been telling his disciples very plainly, I must go to Jerusalem, and now he's there. I will be handed over to the chief priest and the scribes. I will be killed on a cross. On the third day, I will rise again. Point blank blunt. Straightforward. Jesus has told his disciples several times, at least three times. Besides all the other allusions he's made to his coming death, they don't understand how this can happen. And especially on a day when the crowds are acclaiming him to be their king, they don't know how it can happen to their popular Messiah. So I believe Jesus staged this event to give them something that they will remember. It was something quite unusual. And they will remember it. And with it, they will remember what they said. And with it, they will remember what they believed and what they, what they have heard and the things that are true about Jesus' life. And it will come back to them at a future time. And so he rides in to Jerusalem on a donkey. Not a horse. I didn't need to say that, did I? We always say that. Not on a horse, not as a military ruler, not as someone that is competing with the Romans in their, in their uh, control over Palestine and Israel at, the, at that time. He comes riding on a donkey. Riding. So that's something. But not on a military, political kind of power. The kingdom he leads is a different kind of kingdom. His kingdom is going to be marked with humility. The Philippians 2 kind of humility. Where he humbled himself, took on the form of a man, as a servant, humbled himself even to death, even worse, death on a cross. Jesus' kingdom is marked by one who said, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's a different kind of kingdom, isn't it? You can't imagine Pilate or the Roman centurion talking like that. Jesus' kingdom is a different kingdom. And so when they call him king, they probably had in mind the popular concept of a ruling, political, military power. And they probably were calling Jesus, Lord, save us and get rid of these Romans and lead an uprising to get them out of the country. Whereas Jesus' saving was going to happen, but not in the way they envisioned. So they were partly right, but did not understand the, the kind of kingdom that Jesus was going to bring in. Then furthermore, while they're waving palm branches, the victory symbol, Jesus is unmoved by the, the military overtones that they would put on him. He comes to the crest of the hill and he looks out and there is his Jerusalem. There is the, the capital of his 
people's nation. There is the seat of government authority, but there is also the temple where God's people come to worship. There is where the Passover lamb is about to be killed. There, there is where... And Jesus begins to weep. No exultant victory sign, but tears coming down his face. His kingdom is surely a different kingdom. His kingdom is one of compassion and love. For listen to what he talks about. Oh, if only you had known what you need to have for peace. That's what he wants them to have. But now I foresee there's going to be destruction and, and the, the removal of this city and enemies are going to set up a barricade around you and they're going to destroy it all and your children too. And, and he's weeping for what he knows the destruction of Jerusalem will be even while caring and wanting them to have peace. You see, they don't understand that while he is a king to rule and he's a savior to bring salvation, that his salvation is another kind of salvation. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. His desire is for their good, for their peace, for well-being, for life, and his tears and the grief in their coming suffering and the destruction that will happen are an expression of the sincere love and compassion he feels for them. And so he speaks again. Words of peace. He admits the defeat and destruction that they will have. Their kind of kingdom will bring that destruction to them. His kind of kingdom will bring peace to them. His kind of kingdom will bring inner salvation, forgiveness of sin, freedom from the bondage and the, the oppression that Satan has had on their lives these many, many years. So it's right for them to say, Hosanna, Lord, save us, even while they don't well understand what all that means. For Jesus would offer us victory. Not this kind of victory, but victory over sin and selfishness, and fear, and doubt, and failure. Victory that comes by his forgiveness. In John's account of this story, we immediately are introduced to another group of people. We've seen already the Pharisees, We've seen the locals who have known the story of Lazarus and are still talking about it. We've seen the, the influx of pilgrims, the visitors to Jerusalem. But in John's gospel, he introduces another group of people who came, came to Philip and said, Sir, we'd like to see Jesus. These are Greeks, probably people from other countries who have come to know and appreciate the God of Israel and have come to Jerusalem to be a part of the Passover week. Perhaps they have already, as proselytes, em embraced the entire Jewish religion. Perhaps, on the other hand, they are on the way. 
and are called God-fearers. And there are many of those. We meet them in the book of Acts different times. God-fearing God Gentiles who, who love and appreciate Israel but maybe haven't gone the whole way of becoming circumcised and members of the Jewish community that way. But these Greeks came saying, sir, we would see Jesus. What does Jesus talk to them about? Jesus talks to them about a corn or seed of grain falling to the ground. It's got to fall on the ground and die. If it doesn't do that, it's just going to remain alone. It's just going to be all by itself. But if it falls on the ground and dies, then it'll sprout and bring forth life and new, new life and fruit again. And me, he says, that's the way it is with me. I must be lifted up. Then I'll draw all men to me. Oh, we say, I thought he already drew all those men to him. Isn't that what they were all shouting about this Sunday as he came into Jerusalem? He's drawing all men to him already. Jesus says, no, I must be lifted up. And they knew that meant on the cross. And if I'm lifted up, then I will draw all men to me. The locals and the pilgrims, those who believe and don't yet know, fully understand what they believe. And these Greeks who are from another country, I'll draw all men to me that the world might come to me. And as we lift up Jesus this week in our hearts, in our lives, and by the things that we say, be assured that as Jesus is lifted up, he does the work of drawing people to him. And his Holy Spirit will do a work in their hearts to help them come to the same place of acknowledging who he is, the son of God, the son of David, the king of our lives. And so on Palm Sunday, the crowds welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem. Their expressions of faith were appropriate and fitting, even though they didn't understand them completely. And yet as they verbalized their faith, hopefully a sincere and growing faith that eventually accepted Christ as their Lord. On Palm Sunday, the Pharisees hardened their hearts to Jesus even more than before. Even though he extended a hand of welcome to them, and he challenges us to examine the reasons for any resistance or doubt or hesitancy or silence on our part. Examine that and come in faith to him. Finally, on Palm Sunday, Jesus made clear that his kingdom was coming. Though quite different from the earthly and political and military kingdoms they were used to. His is to be a spiritual kingdom which his subjects humbly, in which his su subjects humbly surrender to God. They find in Christ compassion and love, and they experience the salvation and peace that only he can give. May we this week reflect with confidence. Jesus knew what he was doing as he went to Jerusalem. He welcomed their expressions of faith, of praise. He invited them to examine their resistance, and he invited them to experience his salvation. That's still appropriate today. May God be blessed in our lives this week.